Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Casey Hoyt, the CEO of Viamed Healthcare. Viamed is a $196 million market cap company that provides in-home durable medical equipment, also known as DME, and post-acute respiratory healthcare services to patients in the United States. The company has developed a specialty in providing non-invasive ventilation to patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. Casey took over as CEO in 2017 and has helped the company grow its revenue meaningfully over that time, even accounting for the COVID headwinds the company has seen over the last few years. Given Biomed's impressive recent track record and the amount of white space it has to continue to serve even more at-risk patients, I was looking forward to talking to Casey about the elements that have led to such rapid revenue growth, the attractiveness of in-home care relative to acute and outpatient care, the size of the COPD population in the U.S. and how Biomed can increase the penetration of non-invasive ventilation, how the company is attracting and retaining talented people in a very tight labor market for healthcare workers, and how the company thinks about adding new products and services to its current offerings. For full disclosure, Cove Street is a Biomed shareholder. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Biomed Healthcare CEO, Casey Hoyt. As always, we will start this podcast off at a pivotal moment in the company's history. I want to go back to the initial outbreak of COVID and discuss how the company was positioned for what turned out to be a very difficult environment. So when the world started locking down, what did you do as a management team to pivot and to keep operating? Well, the first thing we did at Vimed was secure inventory. We were initially worried about our 700 patients that expire every month and we wanted to make sure that we had equipment on the shelves to take care of those folks. But what that helped us do was get ahead of the inventory curve that was headed our way with ventilators. We had uh, lots of ventilators that were coming in, at which point, once we realized the critical moment in time that this was going to be a part of the care continuum to treat COVID patients, we started deploying them to states and hospitals that were in need. The, um, the second thing that we did was we put a video YouTube channel link, if you will, on how to use these 12, 15 different types of ventilators that now all the clinicians were getting into the hospitals around the country. We're very proud of that work that our RTs did, but it helped emerge Vimet as the thought leader in all things ventilation. And it really put us in position to 
get our story out. We Fox Business, CBS Syndicates, and Newsmax really put us out there on TV. And so that was a good thing for VineMed. Interesting. And so that that's an example of how, you know, this company's gotten better over the last few years. So how would you how would you assess, you know, being being first in the inventory and then being able to monetize some of that inventory? How, how do you think it's positioned you as a, you know, as an improved or better company as a result of the, you know, the impact of the of the COVID pandemic over the last few years? Well, our hospital partners really came to learn to lean on us for all solutions that they needed. And that led us into providing PPE. We actually, that was the beginning of us providing staffing, which is now a permanent division of our company. And so I would classify 2020 as a year of IMED being kind of scrappy with adding incremental revenue that really wasn't part of our core business before. Our core business was taking somewhat of a hit because referral sources were locked up. We couldn't get in to see our positions and couldn't get in to see our hospital partners the way we normally do, but we supplemented that revenue with other streams such as PPE and staffing and, and, and really equipment sales just right off the shelf, which is something that we typically don't do. And where are we, do you think, in the kind of like the recovery of your business relative to, you know, the initial impact of COVID? I mean, have you, have you seen do you do you now have the ability to see physicians and 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 in in a way that allows you to to you know kind of help the patients you need to or are there still things holding that back? No, right now as we sit here today in uh, you know early April of 2022, we consider ourselves back to normal. We've already seen some initial positive momentum that began late in the fourth quarter and carried into throughout the fourth uh, first quarter of 2022. And we saw that too, whenever we had the spikes in 2020 and 2021, as we would spin out of the backside of these spikes, we could see our business turning back on. So the ebbs and flow were directly correlated to us getting back in front of our physicians and being able to be proactive and tell our story and get to the patients that we needed. And I wanted to take a step back and talk about this company's path to becoming public before we dig into the business a little more. So, you know, this company had an interesting path of becoming a public company that included a merger and a spinoff. Maybe talk about the rationale for becoming public and, and maybe just give people a brief overview of how it all transpired. Yeah, so we started the company in 2006, myself and my business partner, Mike Moore, who's our current president. Mike's a respiratory therapist and I was kind of the business guy. And we were private business owners that were selling our business. It was, it was on the market. We linked up with a company called Patient Home Monitoring, which was trading on the Toronto Venture Exchange. So whenever we got to the signing table with these guys, they asked me to be the CEO of the publicly traded group and Mike to be the president. They really wanted us for our management acumen to come help and organize the business. So we inherited our public infrastructure and had to learn, I call it baptism by fire. We were on the job learners of how to run the business and uh, as we sit here today, we, we look back and we're, we don't take that back for anything. It was, it was great business experience. We learned a lot of things along the way. We figured out that BiMed wasn't necessarily the perfect fit for PHM. We had two different strategies for growth at BiMed. We just, we just have to go and find another good person and put them in a vehicle 60 miles down the road. The other companies that we inherited really needed to expand through acquisition. And so two different strategies. So we decided to spin out and it's been healthy for both sides. Today, 
the other side's name is goes by Quipped and and they're on the rise and have a successful business model. And then, of course, we got back to growing our business organically like we do. And I think it's been a successful move to spin out as it relates to uh, what we've done with shareholder value. And you mentioned that um, the growth that you've that you've seen. I mean, this this company has achieved very substantial revenue growth since 2010. I think in your presentation, and you talk about 40% Kager. So I'm interested, you know, for someone who's just approaching this business, what are the elements that have been um, driving that degree of growth? It's finding good people is, you know, we look at all sorts of wonderful data whenever we're expanding. We, We look at COPD prevalence. We target hospital systems that have uh, problems with readmissions and so on and so forth. We look at what the competitors are doing. And, and after, after all that analysis is done, really one of the main reasons that we'll go 60 miles down into a new region is because we found that new person, that clinician that we can teach how to walk and talk the ViMed way and, and convert them into a sales rep. We call our sales reps patient care coordinators because sales rep salesmen is a is a dirty word to them if you will they are true clinicians at heart that wake up every day and just try to take care of patients and so that's a little bit of our secret sauce and in terms of the growth algorithm has that changed at all i mean it was it always going into new regions i mean it sounds also i mean i think from from your presentations and and way i follow this company i mean you guys have gone into like ancillary products i mean talk about how you know, maybe your thoughts about how to grow the company have changed over the last decade. Yeah, when we first started growing in 2012 with non-invasive ventilation, we were very much the first movers as we would go out into new market spaces. And as you fast forward three years down the road, you start looking at, can we grow a little bit faster through acquisition? And after we did dug really deep and deliberated on that analysis, we found that it was faster for us to just go in next to the competitor and, and bring our model into their space rather than inherit other problems that might come with, with acquiring and being acquisitive. So that worked for up until this point, and it still does. We can, we can capture growth with our inorganic growth engine, but or I'm sorry, our organic growth engine, but that's changing. We, we, uh, we now have competition that's in this space that understands how to take care of these patients through using non-invasive ventilation, have good care continuums and programs. They're in geographies that we're not in, perhaps with strategic insurance contracts that we don't have. And so those acquisitions start to make sense for us. And we've, uh, we've been talking about changing our growth model or adding on, if you will, a uh, inorganic strategy for the last year and a half. We did slow down a little bit on that just because the Phillips recall shook some things up. We used a lot of our capital outlay to beef up inventory once again, once we saw that disruption. And that's proven to be the right move. But as we sit here today, we're, we're getting back in, digging into our M&A pipeline. That will be a part of our growth strategy here, we hope, in 2022. Yeah, and I definitely want to dig into the M&A side a little bit. But let's let's take another quick step back. I mean, a lot of people may not be familiar with um, NIV or, or non-invasive ventilation. So maybe just you know one minute overview on what it is and 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 talk about the patients that eventually need this this intervention. The patient is typically a COPD patient, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and they have very very sick lungs. I always explain it to the layman as 
Think of their lungs functioning like a wet ball of newspaper. They've lost the elasticity to get the bad gas, carbon dioxide out and let the good gas oxygen in. And so before non-invasive ventilation was around, you really had to, you were rushing into the hospital. You were getting intubated oftentimes, cutting a hole in somebody's neck, jamming a tube down their throat to get this gas exchange right. Well, today we can use a, virtually it's a CPAP mask with a ventilator. It's called non-invasive ventilation. And it's a much more comfortable way of ventilating the lungs. It relieves a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. As you can probably see, it prevents hospital readmissions and saves a lot of money in, in, uh, in doing so. Compounders is brought to you in partnership with Tegas. We created Compounders to uncover the lessons and frameworks of the best capital compounders in the world. And if you are a professional investor, VC, or operator, and you appreciate the deep research into the businesses explored on this podcast, check out tegas.co slash compounders. With Tegas, you can learn about any company directly from former execs, current customers, and industry experts, all of which are in position to offer unique insights into company's growth, its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. The platform offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies such as Compounders Guests, Viasat, Element Solutions, and Avid Technology. All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access to nearly 25,000 expert call transcripts. And the best part, the Tegas collection grows larger with each investor and company that joins. Still want to do your own expert calls? Tegas is the right solution. Experts that are just as good or better than what you'd find on other networks, but starting at just $300 per call, not the $1,000 or more others charge. If you're ready to go deeper on the next compounding business, head to tegas.co slash compounders for a free trial. I can personally say that having access to the Tegas platform and Rolodex of experts has fundamentally changed the quality of due diligence Coast Street does on both new and existing ideas. And in your presentations, you highlight that there are a lot of people, I think it's in the millions, um, who have COPD and those who have it severely enough that they would qualify for NIV. So, um, you know, of those people who qualify, you estimate that uh, like NIVs only have about 6% penetration, you know, given the cost savings and, you know, the, the non-invasive nature of it, wh why do you think the um, penetration is so low? Well, we, we haven't really had enough studies, clinical studies in this space. If you think about it, we were one of the first in the country back in 2012 to start offering this. And so we didn't have randomized controlled clinical trials. It was basically getting out, knocking on doors, saying, doc, we think we can make your patient feel better by treating them in the home with non-invasive ventilation. Would you like to try? We'd circle back with our success stories and then we'd usually have buy-in. But it's the clinical community that it is, has been longing for more data and more studies in this space that kind of holds them up from identifying non-invasive ventilation as the gold standard of care. At ViMed, we've invested here in the last three, four years in four studies, um, two of which just got published last year and a third that's on the way. They all show that for every five and a half patients we put on therapy, we'll save a life. For every six, we'll save an ER visit. For every eight, we'll save a hospitalization. This translates into cost savings. Our cost savings were shown in our proof of concept study with KPMG four years ago. And we, 
we stratified the study by looking at very expensive patients. And we found that we were saving over $20,000 per patient per year. Well, that wasn't really the right way to do a published study by looking at the cost, just cost only. It was almost like we were cherry picking. So we redid that study here and it's about to come out. We just received our manuscript, but spoiler alert, we're saving over $5,000 per patient per year through the use of this therapy in the home. And uh, if I think about your quote unquote competition, like what, it, what treatments are people receiving if they're not getting NIVs? Is it, is it something more, much more of an invasive vent, uh, intervention? You know, they're all on oxygen therapy state, whether you're stage one, two, three, or four, four is usually our patient when they're, they're mo the most severe, but they're still on oxygen therapy alongside of the vent. They oftentimes might take drugs like albuterol with, with a nebulizer to, to assist. But other than that, no, there's, there's really no other therapy. In the early days, we used to see a lot of doctors try to use BiPAP in an acute setting, which is a souped up CPAP machine to get that gas exchange right. That can work, but the problem is, is when they would go back to the, to the home, their situation would change and the machine would not make the necessary adjustments that they needed. And so here they go, they go back into the hospital again. So you saw, you see less than 1% of folks that are being used on BiPAP. And today, really the gold standard is non-invasive ventilation. The other alternative is just go back to the hospital. And that's oftentimes what they're doing. And obviously that's a very expensive and, and you know, proposition. So, so what do you think the, the, um, what do you think needs to change to get the penetration levels up and to, you know, it sounds like people are going unserved. So you want to better serve these needy patients. So, so what do you think needs to change either industry wise or maybe legislation wise? What, what, what would be the ideal for you guys? Uh, these studies that we're, that we're producing are going to be key. And it's not just for us to use our competitors, use them across the country. We've just get it, got to get out and about to yell this from the mountaintops. If there's one thing that prevented or, or stopped us a little bit short on this, it was COVID. It was, we, we couldn't get our physician, Dr. Bill Frazier, on stage at, at CHEST and the American Thoracic Society. But those are the things that need to happen in the journals for, for doctors across the country to just adhere to this therapy. From a government standpoint, the government Medicare is, is our best payer and, and they pay within 15 days. They're a great payer. However, there's other agencies out there, specifically OIG, that's very confused with the utilization rate spiking with non-invasive ventilation. OIG's printed a report. Naturally, they came after us first. We were the largest provider in the space. And they said that out of 100 charts, we, we didn't have the medical necessity to put the patients on therapy. However, 47 of these charts had already been through complex medical review with CMS and approved. So what we have is Medicare, the clinicians saying, yes, we want this therapy. And we've got the OIG, the regulators saying, we don't understand it. And there's a lot of confusion there between those two agencies. We're kind of the, 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 the stepchild caught in between two divorced parents, if you will. But uh, we, we plan on cleaning this up and, and, and getting everything resolved and having some more clear guidelines developed around non-invasive ventilation that we can all agree that this is healthy therapy. It needs to be put on everyone with a, a neuromuscular disease or a COPD type of lung disease. And the rest is, you know, that, that will probably drastically affect our penetration rate. And we'll talk a little more about the regulatory side as well um, a little later on. But I want to take a step back and talk about 
you know, what is Biomed? So I think a lot of people think of Biomed as specifically a respiratory health company, but would you say that at its core, it's more, it's, it's better to say that Biomed's specialty is home health and that you can provide any number of other services in home. Would that be a fair statement? The only thing that I would disagree with calling us a home health is that the way that a home health is reimbursed is through a 60 to 90 day length of stay. And then they have to get out of the, the home. Whereas the difference between what we do, we're in there for 17 months on average. I mean, we become an extension of this patient's family. We've, we are deeply building relationships with not only the patient, but their caretakers. And so as you sit and reflect on who we are, we're enabled by DME, the Durable Medical Equipment Codes. But DME is a very dirty word to buy med. We're we not your mom and pop, wheelchairs, walkers, beds, commodes type of business. We were very much a disease management type of business that is high touch. And I say high tech with its service protocols. We've got a technology platform that we built out here in-house. It's a hub that's basically a tablet, goes into the home, has a telehealth feature for the respiratory therapist. And it's designed for us to real time interact with the patient to truly prevent these unnecessary hospital readmissions that are oftentimes driven by anxiety or, or some emotional reason that we can help talk them off of a ledge and, and give them the comfort to reach out. And I think it's, you know, anybody who follows the, the medical, medical world and understands that, you know, getting patients out of the hospital is, is usually a good thing. So can you talk about the trends you're seeing as it relates to where care is being delivered? I mean, kind of most efficaciously for the patient, but also cost effectively. In other words, you know, how does in-home care in your experience compare with either outpatient or in-hospital care for your patients? Yeah, and we're, we're not replacing hospital home care. We're always going to need the hospital to, to really handle the very severe situations that pop up with these patients. We, we want to become an extension of their offering into the home. And you're seeing that these hospital-to-home programs that have been developed by Medicare that all of these hospitals now are identifying they can make money through administering these programs and partnering up with guys like us at BiMed that can help with the continuum of care in the home. And so COVID shined a very bright light on how few of hospital beds we really have in this country. And we've got over 11,000 baby boomers turning 65 every day for the next 16, 17 years in this country, we don't have enough hospital beds. We don't have enough clinicians to truly take care of what's headed our way or else we're going to bankrupt the country going down our current system. So all of these, it's all playing into the hand of doing it with a less expensive physician, uh, clinician, such as a respiratory therapist versus a pulmonologist, do it in a less expensive setting, such as in the home versus in the hospital. And so it's, a, it's about collaborating with the payer, the hospital system, and guys like us in order to really save the healthcare system true, true dollars right now. And you mentioned demographics there um, and, and the aging population are, you know, in, in the U.S. So I know this is a major, a major driver. Can you talk about that demand and, and how, you, you know, how you expect Biomed to, to be involved as the Medicare population continues to expand? Uh, the, the, the Medicare population, if I'm correct, and, and don't quote me on this, I want to say it's going up to like 58 point from 58.4 to almost 90 billion 
from uh, 2020 to, I guess that would be in 2029. So we, they, they have to invest more into the program in order to support what's headed their way. We know the beneficiaries are growing. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be one of these things that we're just in really a really good spot to support along the way. It's not going away. It's only getting greater and we're not going to run out of patients. So these are, I think these are the big market indicators that really play in our hand. And you mentioned that, that DME is kind of a dirty word at, at Viamed, but I'm, I'm interested in, in, you know, kind of how you see what's happened with some of these DME companies that have become, went public and there was a lot of excitement around them. And now it feels like there's almost pessimism in the space. What do you, what do you think people are, you know, why do you think people become less enamored with DME and why would lumping Viamed into any pessimism about DME be um, kind of unfair? Well, to, to start off this answer, I'm a little bit just as confused as anyone else on, on, on the why. So these are my assumptions. I mean, I think a lot of folks or investors at the beginning of COVID saw the DME industry maybe as a COVID play and learned along the way that, you know, this was a different type of business that was more home health type of oriented, as you said. Uh, so there was a little bit of maneuvering of getting in and out throughout that whole process. The entire industry, in my opinion, is very undervalued, in particular Vimed. We, uh, we're a, a highly profitable organization with a clean balance sheet, underlevered, and um, you know we're it's it's not fair to, to where we're trading right now, if you will. And so I, I think a lot of our, it was great to have some peers show up in the industry. We were one of the first publicly traded companies in our space. Now having guys like Adapt and guys like Rotec coming online, hopefully uh, we have quipped our, our, uh, our other half of the spinoff. You know, that's, we're all doing well, we're all growing and we have similar stories. So it's, it's very confusing as to why the investor is, is lacks confidence in our space. There's a lot of maneuvering in healthcare. Some, some folks don't understand reimbursement the right way. We've got a fee-for-service type of reimbursement model today. Tomorrow, it might be a value-based arrangement that we're all talking about, but that's something that everybody's posturing and positioning for right now, and it's really not here just yet. And when it comes to your business model, I know a lot of the other DME players um, have physical stores, and that's really the way they go to market. Why um? Why has Viamid chosen not to go that route? Why is there not any value to having more of a physical presence? A physical store makes sense whenever you are offering wheelchairs and knee braces and walkers, and you need a, a warehouse, if you will, for all of these products, a, a retail type of center where a patient might be able to come through the door and kind of walk around and choose what types of DME that they need or require. That's really not a part of our business model. Our business model is putting people in a car that's monitored by GPS. We like to say that we respond faster than the competitor. And we are just a little bit more leaner and meaner, very niche focused on being a complex respiratory provider. You know, we're talking a lot about non-invasive ventilation, which represents 78% of our revenue, but we also have percussion vests. We have oxygen, we have CPAPs and, and, any these other products that are in the respiratory realm that we offer that don't really require a brick and mortar type of facility. We can load up the inventory in the chunks of our 
vehicles and off we go. And instead of spending the CapEx or any CapEx on stores, you're spending it more on acquiring the inventory. So, you know, especially ventilators. So I'm just trying to get a sense of like, do you have any data for us and, and for potential investors, like about the payback period and the average life of the units that you acquire? Like what, what are the returns you're getting as you're spending capital dollars on, on things like ventilators? The best money we can spend is to buy more ventilators for our business. And so those vents usually have a 10-year life. Our payback period, let's call it between 14 to 16 months. So I usually say we got a 7X on our ROI for, for that piece of equipment. And you mentioned the Phillips recall. Obviously, during during the, the, the worst part of COVID, we were running out of ventilators. So supply chains have been a really large topic of conversation, um, especially when it comes to, to, to DME. So maybe talk a little bit about how you've dealt with the supply chain issues and the and the recall. Um, and you know, assuming that your costs are rising, what is the mechanism for um, you know getting pricing uh, to to compensate you for those rising expenses? Well, at ViMed, we haven't modeled any shortage of supply for 2022. We've been very nimble. We responded early on not only throughout the pandemic, but throughout the recall with beefing up our inventory. So we've got equipment at our shop to carry on, not only just for our business today, but also to acquire patients from other sources that might be in need of equipment. So we consider the recall to have created this disruption, which has also created an opportunity for us inside of IMED. As it relates to expenses, we've seen some, you know, cost increases that are going up, uh, not just with, with, the, with the products, but also with, with the cost of acquiring talent and uh, the price of a respiratory therapist has risen. So we do have some challenges that the way that we uh, look at it is we're going to outgrow those challenges. We're gonna grow through it and it might put a, a little bit of pressure on our margins, but we don't expect to be too material. And, and that's a good segue to my next question about people. So especially in your business, attracting and retaining good people is, is key. And it's obviously a big topic of conversation these days across a lot of different companies. So, um, I mean, and I guess it's also true that that healthcare workers have seen, you know, have had a pretty tough experience, I think, in general throughout the COVID period. So maybe talk a little bit about how challenging it's been for to find good people and then talk about anything that you guys do to try to retain them and keep them within the the biomed umbrella? We ran through some challenges in 2020 with RTs being offered ridiculous rates to travel and go into these epicenters and make make money that we would never competed with to try to retain them. We lost some people. Since we've seen those guys come back into the fold looking for more of a normal life and a normal course of business. And so just because they, that they left and came back did not make them a bad therapist or a bad person. They were chasing opportunity and we welcomed them back. And so we've seen a lot of normalcy, a return back to normalcy of how uh, the, the clinicians are available and returning into our business. The, um, as, it, as it relates to, what was the last part of your question? It was about retention. Just wondering how, yeah, retention. how to keep people given, you know, given that. I think a lot of people are burnt out from, you know, especially in the healthcare realm. How are you retaining people? Yeah. So you had the burnout and they returned to normalcy thing, but the real way that 
we retain people over here at Biomed is we treat them right. It's an advancement at the next step of their career. Most of these therapists are coming out of the hospital where they work two shifts. Oftentimes they're working nights. They're seeing a lot of tough situations that are inside of the hospital. When you get offered a job to come work at Vimed, it's somewhat of a cush job for a respiratory therapist. They, they have a little bit more freedom. They're operating out of their vehicles. They, they have to be self-disciplined with their schedules and so on and so forth, but that's manageable. Even though they're on call 24-7, 365, it's a more better work-life balance for them. And not only that, we put them in a position to where they can typically make more money and advance their career over here at Vimed. And so we're always looking for ways to reward folks for bringing new ideas, being expressive and, and working hard. So there's lots of bonus programs that we constantly maneuver with to keep them to keep them very happy. But we put a lot of focus on maintaining the quality of our company culture. And that makes it a real hard place for, for a therapist to leave once they get into the fold. And digging in a little further on that, I'm interested um, about what kind of values you aim to embed within the culture and how do you take those off the whiteboard, you know, in your conference room down to the RT level? So it's like, you know, as opposed to like, this is the company's values, but how do you get it all the way down to an RT? So someone's actually living those values. We're very patient centric around here. And we always have this saying that the patient comes first, that there's some situations often where we're, we're donating equipment. We, we might, we might lose some money on this or that that patient that is really needing us at that moment in time, our people see those decisions being made all the way to the top. And so it's, it's a place where you can truly make a difference in someone's life. You keep in mind, these guys that we are even training to be sales reps that were clinicians, they didn't go to school to learn how to sell. They went to school to learn how to take care of patients because they're a bleeding heart. And so we have that at our core with everything that we do. And usually the success just kind of falls into place and comes secondary to that. The last piece I'll say is we're just a very family-oriented organization. I come from a, a family-run business, and, and uh, Mike, Mike has got those same values. We, we truly treat all of our employees like they're part of one big family. That is something that is felt within, shoot, the first two weeks of working at Vimed. And folks really, really just respond positively to that and give us everything that they've got. And I think given labor shortages and then I think how telehealth is, is now being much more accepted uh, within the entire healthcare space, I think technology is likely to play a larger and larger roles, especially when it comes to home healthcare. So maybe you, you mentioned some of your technology offerings, but I'd love to hear a little more about what Viamed's doing on the technology front and what are the opportunities for you associated with using more technology? Sure. Our thesis with building out our own piece of technology was, was trying to get our length of stay numbers from 17 months to maybe 18 months, ultimately. It's a little too early on for us to present that because we're, we're still in the middle of our national rollout with our engaged platform. But the numbers that we have seen is that we used to lose 20% of our patients in months one, two, and three. 8% month one, six in month two, another six in month three. We've got that down to 13% on all engaged patients. And so we know that we're driving quality of life. We're driving good clinical benefit for these patients, which will ultimately result in a longer length of stay. And that's how we'll financially pay for the uh, entire investment, if you will. 
So that's one piece of it. We're also increasing RT efficiencies just by the fact that they can pull up a telehealth call and find out that the machine's not plugged into the wall or, or silence an alarm from, from that type of setting saves them the trip that might be two hours out of the way. And so we now they're at a position where they can manage maybe 60 patients where previously they were managing 50. So that's a good thing. The last piece is really the, the grander vision of it all. And, and well, there's, there's two more pieces. You have the clinician who is the pulmonologist that wants to have access from afar as well, looking into the care of their patients. And so we've allowed them to have a portal where they can just check in and make sure everything's going the way that they expect it to be alongside of their care continuum. And then we have some real-time data and real-time outcomes that we can present back to the payer as well. And so as we shift into this value-based world, value-based means that we're going to be paid for producing positive clinical outcomes and saving money. And whenever we can prove that with technology and data, and we can do it on the spot, with a certain batch of patients for that payer, that becomes really powerful as you're developing your value prop pitch for the value-based world. Then the last piece on that would be data monetization. We're as we capture data, we, we know that we have some valuable data points to share with others that might be in need of purchasing it, albeit a pharmaceutical company or whatnot. Down the road, we're, we're developing those types of strategies as we speak, but we're still in data capturing mode. We're still in national rollout mode. So it's very early on, but that's the grand vision of how we see our technology complementing our service. And would you expect uh, the ability for the pulmonologist to, to look in on the patient and track that patient better? Do you think that could potentially um, make everybody more comfortable with NIV and the whole in-home versus hospital. And so maybe the penetration rates eventually go up. Is that, is that, a, is that logic makes sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's our job to report. We, we always are harping on that here with our sales force. You need to be reporting back to the doc, but the more access that they have to that and, and the looking glass to that clinician or patient that it's going to ease their, uh, their doubt about non-invasive ventilation therapy. And I want to dig in a little bit on capital allocation. We talked about M&A already, and you talked about why, you know, in the past, M&A didn't make as much sense because you felt like you could, Greenfield was probably better than uh, than, than doing kind of a uh, an acquisition strategy. So, um, you know, maybe talk a little bit about how you expect M&A to be a part of the strategy going forward now that, you know, assuming you're going to have the capital to do so and you, there's demand, where, you know, where do you think that could, where do you think those dollars would go? Well, we, we've dumped some of our capital outlay into buying equipment, as I mentioned. And then the, the second piece was we've developed some divisions in-house. We, we reinvest into the business. It's always part of our strategy as well. As you look at deploying capital into M&A, we really have three different types of strategies that we could look at. I mean, number one, we could go in and find that other company very similar to ViMed with good management that's in a spot that we're not in with contracts that we don't have, maybe even with patients that are different than our adult patients, perhaps pediatrics or so on and so forth, as an example. Those all make sense. We also have acquisition strategies where we can go out and acquire patients and, and only patients from folks who are no longer have the ability to really service them the way that they did previously, just because of the, the supply shortages that are out there. And so that's definitely something that we're paying close attention to. 
And then the last piece would be any type of assistance to speed up our technology efforts to where we can build out our platform, maybe a little bit smarter and faster to put us in position to where we go capture a value-based contract, a large national contract with a payer using that technology at a faster rate. And so that's how we look at those strategies. And are there adjacent products that you can essentially add to your bag that your existing respiratory therapist can can help patients with? Or do you already provide most of those products? We are constantly looking for products that make sense and add value to the patient in the home for us to administer. We, we like to leverage our our respiratory therapist network. So naturally the products that we bolt on kind of fit within the respiratory space up until this point. But as you look at the three years, maybe five years down the road, and you put yourself into position to go out and get one of these maybe pop health or or value-based contracts, we know that we're gonna need to be taking care of other disease states and perhaps diabetes or congestive heart failure in a different way. And so we don't ignore these other adjacencies where we're constantly working and grinding, but we're very cautious about which ones we add in to the fold. We don't want something that's an outlier, too far out of bounds from what we're already doing that's going to really slow down our organic business model. An example of our most recent bolt-on was really behavioral health with uh, the mental illness that's such a problem throughout the country and really in particular with our patients. We estimate 50% of the reasons that they go back to the hospital are emotional anxiety driven. And so we've been hiring behavioral health specialists to work alongside of our respiratory therapists to work through some of these issues and offer that value into the home. It's something that physicians and hospital referral sources are really excited about. They need this type of help and assistance in the home and we're able to offer it. So you'll see us expanding that business line here as we go into 2022 as well. And as you think about going into adjacent offerings such as behavioral health, um, what, um, how have you thought about, it sounds like w- with that example, you're doing it more in hiring internally versus making an acquisition. So how have you thought about, you know, rel- relative to maybe accelerating that through an acquisition or doing it internally? How, how's that capitalist gone over time? We're, we're looking at both right now. And it's, um, I will say that what I've uncovered is that the behavioral health is such a hot topic right now that the multiples on these businesses are are very out of whack. And so the good news is, is we have an organic model to continue to grow on our own and and learn more about this business, but we're not going to just go out and do a deal to do a deal. It's got to be the right deal for us. It's got to be valued appropriately and put us in position to really springboard real revenue inside of our organic engine. And when I read through your conference calls, sometimes I feel like there's just a lot going on, you know. So, for example, this year you're going to be going into a bunch of new regions or, or areas, as you call them. Um, and, you know, I'm just trying to get a sense of, like, you know, all the things that are going on. And then, you know, how how hard it is for you to go into a new geography. Um, what does that look like? When we grow into a new geography, it's really about finding the right person. So keep in mind, we're not buying anybody. We're not having to go get a a brick and mortar facility. It's really a lot of of our recruiting and training effort that comes in in order for us to get our return on investment on that person. And so uh, that's the game there. It's not easy. It's very 
challenging to find the right person who's a clinician that also wants to sell and be successful. So, uh, every, you know, we wake up every day and that's always top of mind. How do we find that right person and get them trained and give them the support they need to be successful in a new territory? Uh, as it relates to all the other divisions, I mean, we got staffing that's really coming online. It stands to be very material in 2022. We're having a lot of success with the labor shortage out. And a lot of our hospital partners are, are reaching out and leaning on us to, to assist them with those types of needs. And so we expect that to be a very successful arm of business. And then you, I just talked about behavioral health. The way that we do it is just hiring good people. I've got good lieutenants. Great, great guys and gals that work for us that are here in Lafayette. We, uh, the majority of the leaders of our silos and our business are up here on the same floor with me. And look, we're a hallway company. We get a lot done very fast, and we, we don't wait for a Zoom call to be scheduled two weeks out to make to have a meeting to where we're going to make a decision. We usually just bust into each other's offices and get it done. It's as simple as that. And as it relates to going into new areas. What does a white space look like for Viamed for someone who's not particularly familiar with your existing footprint? If you think about the market penetration numbers we were talking about, only 6%. We got 94% of the people that qualify for our care are going back into the hospital without it. And so that's the ultimate white space. And then you add on top of it, the, all the market indicators with the baby boomers aging you know, that, that correlates with the COPDers. There's estimated 25 million COPDers in the country. All, their disease is, is not going away. It's a chronic disease. And so it's progressing as well. It's, we've got a lot of patients that are in need of us right now. And uh, that's the stuff that we lose sleep over is how do we get to those 94%. And given all the things that you have going on, um, how do you allocate your time across all of the different initiatives that the company is working on? Uh, you know, it's I've got a really great executive assistant. She keeps me in the right spots, and I uh, I'm very I'm I'm very efficient with how I schedule my time. And we uh, we have regularly scheduled management meetings, and it's no different than running any other business. I just uh, I, I try to stay in the most pertinent projects and pertinent spots that I possibly can in order to drive the best value for our shareholders. And. I wanted just to dig in a little more on the regulatory side because it is so important in your business. Um, so obviously CMS, you said, is your best payer and anything that's going on with CMS will have a big impact on, on Biomed and, and the entire DME industry. So, I mean, before, let's go, but let's take out the OIG situation, which I'm going to ask you another question on, but before the OIG situation, I mean, how, what, it, what had been the company's historical experience with dealing with CMS and, and being a good partner? Was that a pretty productive relationship before, you know, kind of the OIG, uh, you know, situation last year? Yes, it was productive, but it wasn't one without audits. Uh, CMS has regular audits on the dur durable medical equipment industry. And so we get them computer generated, we get them initiated by nurses, we get them initiated by contractors. So you're constantly working through audits and explaining the clinical efficacy of what you're doing for this patient. That's just normal course of business. Before the OIG came in, we had a prepayment audit, as it was called, where you know CMS wants to do a deep dive into a complex review of a certain batch of patients. And, and those things can sometimes be like, all right, we got to be on our A game here, make sure everything's all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed. But we passed that co complex medical review with by 100%. And so that was a great indicator that 
we're doing the right things. We have the right protocols in place. And so it really gave us the confidence to run and with this, with this business as the, and then the OIG comes in with a totally different perspective, but that's not uncommon for them to do. They, they typically do for lack of a better word, lazy work. You know, it's, it's easy for them to come in and say, you know what, we're going to deny all hundred of these patients and not even look at the fact that CMS has already approved 47% of the ones that they picked. So that's the, that's the struggle here that we, we have to fight every day. It's, you know, I don't infect my entire organization with the regulatory issues that we have to work through. It's, there's only about two or three of us that kind of are siloed off. We work with lobbyists, we work with lots of politicians, and, and then we work with the agencies themselves. CMS has called us up to have meetings, myself and our medical director, Dr. Bill Frazier, to talk about our new studies. So they want to be educated about what's going on. And so, so they're learning too. And, and it's, uh, it's one of these things, it's the government, they're, they're slow movers and they don't, they don't ever commit to any kind of timeline. So that part really can frustrate, not just us, but investors as well, whenever they're looking for a clear answer. But uh, that's just, look, I guess if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. We're in a, we're in a, it's a barrier to entry for a lot of folks, but it's one that we're committed to being a part of the real solution. We got to get this right because it's the patients on the back end who need us right now that are suffering. And this patient's at the end of life. They're going back inside of the hospital. They're without this solution. And it's because of these regulators are holding us up with unclear guidelines. And the other thing that um, is meaningful to your business is pricing that's often set by CMS. And um, so I'm, you know, I'm I'm still a little bit baffled by about you know competitive bidding and what that is and how that all works. So maybe just talk, give our listeners a brief overview of pricing and competitive bidding and how you know it, and, and how the whole the whole industry is 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 regulated by uh, by CMS on that front. Sure. So I'll start off with saying that our regulatory landscape is as stable as it's ever been and has been since 2016. Competitive bidding was a program that was initiated by CMS to come in and, and have us bid on a price for every single piece of equipment that might be a commodity type of equipment, like a wheelchair or a CPAP and so on and so forth. Our argument always was that non-invasive ventilation should never be a part of competitive bidding because it requires frequent and substantial service, meaning that our RT might have to be out in the home 12 times in the first month, or maybe they got them compliant on the first time you just don't know what you're going to run into, but you have to have a model to where you drop things and go at the patient's moment, at the, the moment the patient needs you. So that's not really a good fit for the competitive bidding program. We always knew that. However, they were signaling that they were going to lump us into the, to the program before the pandemic started. Right after the pandemic started, I think it was in May of 2020, they quickly removed ventilation from the competitive bidding program and said, you guys will not be included. Now we have other products, O2, CPAP and, and, um, and others that were included in the competitive bidding process. Well, then they later made a submit pricing for, for all of our products. Once they got the information, they realized that they weren't gonna save any money because they had cut the industry to the bone. So they pulled the whole competitive bidding program and suspended it to till 2024. They, they have recently missed some other deadlines that they were supposed to hit to extend the program to the next beyond 2024. So it's all kind of signaling that 
look, we've cut this industry to the bone. We're not at a point in time where we need to put putting pressure on home care suppliers. We need more of these guys. And they are under pricing pressure, whether it be inflation or the, the rise in the cost of clinicians and so on and so forth. So I feel pretty bullish that the competitive bidding program is, is on pause for an uh, indefinite period of time. And how does that change, if at all, the way you operate, knowing that there's a little more stability in pricing? It, I mean, it doesn't really. Uh, you know, we we submitted our bids for competitive bidding. It was we we estimated that we were going to pick up market share in that environment, and so it didn't really scare us. We submitted a fair market value price that we could maintain our margins at, and so it didn't change one thing of the way that we operate. And you mentioned margins there. And we haven't really talked about that. But from an operational perspective, I was wondering about what profitability metric you focus on the most and, you know, any strategies and opportunities you could highlight to improve profitability over time. Well, we we watch EBITDA around here very tightly. And that's that's the, the number one metric that we're always focused on. Our, our management team is is got a bonus structure that ties into to generating EBITDA. And so that doesn't mean that we're not constantly looking to improve our margins. We we are the type of organization that invests back into the business as well. And so oftentimes you'll see our margins fluctuate, you know, and when they do, it's because we reinvested into the business. But uh, on the, um, as far as the metrics that we look at, we're looking at top to grow top line revenue and to just keep our EBITDA margins where they need to be. And there, there are some incredible stories in healthcare of, you know, companies being small and then, you know, growing to be behemoths. I mean, Teleflex is the one that we always talk about at this firm because, you know, our, our founder owned it and, and watched it just blossom. Is there something in the healthcare space? Is there a company that you admire or, you know, that you that you would like Viamed to be when you grow up? Does that does, when I say that, does that ring any bells? Yeah. It does. I, I, across the street in our little town of Lafayette, Louisiana, we have this company called LHC Group, which is one of the two largest home healths in the, in the country. It was started by a friend of ours, Keith Myers, who was a crawfish farmer, and, and he just cared about taking care of patients. His wife was a nurse, and they, they built the business from the ground up themselves here locally. And so we're it's a unique situation to have two large companies. Well, he's very large. They recently just sold to United Healthcare for $5.4 billion. That was announced last week, I believe. And so we're very proud of the work that they've done and, and the, the jobs that they've created in the community and the example that they've set for how to grow a business from the ground up and into a large organization. So it's nice for us to keep a watchful eye on everything that they do across the street. And when I say across the street, I mean, you can almost see their office from our windows. So we're really close. Now it's, it's really amazing to have, to have like that example so close to home. Yeah. Um, and, and so when I think about the size of this company, you know, Viamed did about 117 million in revenue in 2021. You know, you're obviously a big player in NIV, in the NIV world, but kind of a small player in the overall healthcare market. So how do you think about what it means to have, you know, kind of quote unquote enough scale? You know, do you need more scale to continue to grow and drive value for your shareholders? We are definitely at the life cycle of our business where it's time to scale at a faster rate than what we've done. And the reason for that is we want to be in position to get these larger payer contracts. And in order to do so, 
you know, you can't just be a respiratory company that's in there treating a very small batch of their expensive patients. You really need to be someone who's in position to take care of all of the, the, the demographic of the disease states, if you will. And so in order to do that, it's going to take us to, to grow in a different way through m &A and and really take some shots at some different disease states. And we're willing to do that. We've got the, the team that knows how to take anything that we drop into this fold and make money with it. And that will only you know, fuel our growth. But, uh, but that's how we look at it. We're, we're positioning for three to five years down the road to be a much bigger player in healthcare. And since M&A is going to be a portion of that, I think you're well aware that multiples in healthcare are often really high. As you said, behavioral health is those multiples are really high. How do you avoid, you know, getting involved in auctions or paying, you know, a really high EBITDA multiples to get into the, you know, kind of the attractive growing uh, areas within healthcare and medical? <laughs> well, we, we reflect on our multiple right now and where we're at and say, you know, it's, it's kind of hard for us to pay any higher than this. Right. And so, we're at a unique spot. I mean, we want to get to the point we, where we, we use, we're using our stock as a currency to be part of these deals. And, and right now we would never do so just because we're undervalued. And so that's the, the challenge that we're up against with the, with the M&A world right now. But uh, we see that changing as we continue to evolve and grow and, and get our story out to more investors, such as using channels like, like this that we're on. Um, you know, it's, it's a powerful story to tell with a lot of runway for growth and success for a shareholder to, to enter at this point in time. And if you were going to do m and I mean, would you expect, you know, new adjacencies or, you know, any, anything that kind of you're just bolting on and adding to, to, to your existing infrastructure, would you expect it to impact margins? Um, or could you think you can find, you know, whether it's an EBITDA margin, gross margin, whatever you want to focus on, do you, can you find businesses that with, with similar margin structures? We can find businesses with similar margin structures, and we can also find some that would affect our margins. And so we're not ruling out both. It depends on what type of strategy that lower margin business would bring to the table. And when we got into staffing, we knew that staffing was going to be a lower margin business. But the value it brought to us is that we built out our own recruiting platform that the staffing guys help us with and it drives the higher margin business and puts us in a position to have a better story to tell to our hospital partners and so on and so forth. So there's multiple strategies with the staffing business beyond just the incremental revenue it brings on a lower margin basis. And we're not afraid to make those moves if they make sense, but um, you know, there's definitely other companies that have similar margins to ViMed that we can also bolt on. And what do you think are three things that this company absolutely has to get right uh, over the next few years for this stock to be a good investment for both your investors and your employees? Continue to grow the way that we always have at a faster rate is number one. It, 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 the 94, I can't say it enough, the 94% of folks that need us, we have to keep that on top of mind. So you won't see us get too far out of bounds from that as being the main focus of our strategy. The, uh, the second piece, I think, is getting your M&A strategy right and, and making sure that we're finding the right deals, the ones that bring the right value, and we're not just doing deals to do deals. And so the third piece is evolving our technology. 
We, we need to have technology improve the human touch that we bring into the home. The unique part about our business is that we have both. And, you know, usually you have a technology company that has that doesn't have any kind of physical presence in the home or the latter. A lot of human touch without technology. So we're in a unique little spot right there where we can utilize both sectors. And um, I think those are the three focuses that we'll be harping on here as we put ourselves in a position to get these large payer contracts. And where do you think you have room personally to become a better leader? Where, what skill sets would you like to develop? I mean, maybe, maybe M&A and integrations probably might be a part of that. What, where do you think you would like to grow um, as you look out over the next five years or so? You nailed it. M&A. I, I, uh, we acquired one company whenever we were at PHM and, that, and with that tenure and saw the, the work that it took to integrate and get the team right. And so we learned a lot of lessons through that one transaction, but that's the only transaction that we have under our belts here as our leadership team. We've been building up a, a team that has some experience that come in and assist and help with us. But me as a leader as well, I've, I've got work to do in, in developing my skill set to where we uh, can keep a watchful eye on the, all the strategies that are going on. And, you know, you, you guys have been in the DME space um, and, the, and the medical space for a while. I'm interested if there's any or if there are any critical things that you've had to rethink or change your position on over the years. Anything that you've said, you know, what I would have said 10 years ago, this is the way the world is. And now you, you clearly recognize that, that the, you know, the world is not how you thought it was. I did not recognize that it would take so long to get in t- inside of the VA with our solution. That, that's one thing that we've been working on for the last four years that has been dra- dragging its feet. We move very fast over here at ViMed and we usually get things done and, and we're used to execute. But this is one that has just been tough to deal with the slow moving bureaucracy inside of the VA, no matter how much clinical sense or, or how much savings is at stake. I will say I've got positive things going on it, but I'm always hesitant to just talk about them because you know they can have the rug pulled out from underneath you at a moment's notice. So the VA is, is one that we've got to, to work on. We're not giving up. We, VA is the second largest payer in the country. They've got, they're three times more likely to have COPD inside of those, the VA. There's a lot of veterans that are in need of our care. They're going back into the hospital. So we've got a problem to solve there and we're the ones to do it. We're not going to give up. It's just, I would have thought it would have been a lot faster than it has been. I think that's a common theme in your business is that, you know, the, the government moves very slowly. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think we talked a lot about a lot of things that you think are maybe misunderstood or underappreciated about this company, but we're going to close with our favorite question. And the one I ask all our guests is like, what would you say is the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of your company? The, the, the question that I rarely get about what moves the needle around here at ViMed that's overlooked by investors is about company culture. The company culture that we've created over here at ViMed with it being a place where people come to have their careers blossom and, and go to the next level and get treated with respect and then deliver expert care to these patients. That is the secret sauce of, of ViMed. It's, it's something that is hard to measure and can be hard to put your finger on, but it's it's really what makes us tick over here. And, and it's something that I'm very proud of, not just that I've developed, but my whole team has developed and infected the rest of our organization with. 
yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's always amorphous and it's always hard to quantify that, but you know, that's a sustainable culture can be as much of an advantage as anything else. Uh, well, Casey, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for sharing all about your business and, you know, fighting the good fight to help COPD patients. I, I mean, we appreciate your efforts on that, on that behalf. And, and given that we're shareholders, we have, we appreciate all of your efforts. So thanks again for being on the show. And we're really looking forward to seeing what the next few years have in store for, um, for Vimed. Same here. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better, and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-streetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.